Welcome back to the Anglo Boer War Podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. This week's episode is packed with incidents, so let's get straight to it. We kick off where we left off last week. Jan Smuts's commander was near Calvinia in the Northern Cape, evading the English. But it's also where Commandant Bouvier was surprised by a mounted infantry unit of the British, which killed or wounded 17 of his men, who were mainly skewered by swords as they slept. Remember, I explained how the colonial Alem Colain had ingratiated himself with Bouvier's commander. Denis Reitz, whose memoir I've used throughout this series, called him Lemuel Colain, but his real name was Lambert Colain. And he wasn't English-speaking, but a Cape Afrikaner. And the fact he was an Afrikaner doomed him, as we'll see. Colain, you see, was a British spy and playing a dangerous game. Remember, he arrived at Bouvier's unit, claiming he'd escaped from a Clan William prison, where he was charged with treason by the British. That was a lie. He was being paid by the British. After he learned enough about the commander's daily life, Calaine disappeared one day, only to return with the British mounted infantry, leading them towards the men sleeping under the trees at Van Reinsdorp at dawn in mid-February 1902. This incensed the Boers, who swore revenge on him, and his nemesis would be Jan Smuts. After Commandant Bouvier's force had been surprised, he was smarting from the setback. Not only had Bouvier lost good men, but the British were now following up the attack by advancing in force with a clear object to retake the town of Van Reinsdorp from the Boers. With him was our intrepid narrator, Denise Reitz. I remained with Bouvier overnight in the threatened village, and as his scouts reported next morning that a strong column of English horsemen were pushing forward, he decided to retire northwards to the mountains until the reinforcements could reach him. Reitz was now one of the best scouts and intelligence gatherers in southern Africa, and Bouvier asked him to go out and watch the movements of the enemy. So he and a party of what he calls his old friends, Nicholas Swart and Edgar Duncker, headed off. The former with his arm in a sling, while the latter had his shattered hand in splints and a pillow strapped to his saddle to ease his wounded thigh. The sound of distant rifle fire had been an irresistible attraction for these two wounded Boers, and they had refused to remain behind after hearing shots fired in the town. It wasn't long before this little party of three spotted the large column of British horsemen coming up towards them from the direction of the Orange River. They also spotted the British scouts, who were clearly visible in the vastness of the Karoo landscape. These men were thrown forward on a wide front, and in minutes, Reitz and his wounded colleagues were engaged in a running firefight, which continued until they pressed us back through the streets into the open country, where we took to our heels to catch up with Bouvier's main body making for the mountains. The British were harrying the Boers and determined to clear the felt. What's more, they were moving much more quickly than earlier in the war. As Reitz and his party fled, the British scouts, who were very accurate snipers, opened fire. In the course of one of these skirmishes, Dunker, riding beside me, was shot through the chest. We plugged the bullet holes with pieces of his shirt, and he rode on with us for 15-odd miles that we had to go before we overtook the commander. Dunker, I'm sure you'll agree, sounds almost superhuman. He now had a broken arm and a bullet hole through his chest, but somehow clung onto his horse to make his escape from the British. He was then sent to a farm among the foothills and completely recovered in a few weeks, reports Rates. Amazingly resilient, these men. 
The English column then stopped in the village, which gave Bouvier and his commando time to escape. Bouvier did not retire up the mountains after all, but determined to recover his lost ground, he sent me hurrying up the pass to ask General Smuts for help. Reds then spent two days riding 60 miles back towards Calvinia before he came across Jan Smuts. When he heard that the troops were back in Van Reinstorp, he ordered the commanders to gather. Smuts also sent word to Van Deventer to bring his men to the head of the pass at Niebertsville, where he would wait while another messenger was sent to Bouvier with word that he should remain where he was until help arrived. Various other small patrols were ordered in to add numbers to Smuts's force. Three days later, Van Deventer arrived with his fighting men, and then Smuts descended the mountains to Union's Kraal on the plains, where Bouvier waited eagerly. There was going to be one big battle, and the Boers were motivated by the possibility they could find Colain. Little did Reitz know that he would be a critical component of that search. This was also the first time in eight weeks that Smuts's entire commando had been reunited since parting at the Zierbergen, the Sauer Mountains, and there was a great deal of cheering and handshaking when all were well met. That night, our whole force marched out, intending to attack Van Reinstorp at daybreak, but when it grew light, we found that the English troops had been withdrawn to a place called Vintuk, ten miles back. This, of course, is not to be confused with Vintuk, the capital of Namibia, which was almost 800 miles from where this action took place. Smuts saw that Vintuk was in the process of being turned into a fortified camp, so sent his men to lay over in the recovered village of Van Reinstorp until dark. Most were unaware of the plans to attack at dawn the following day. One of these was Reitz, who was ordered at sunset to head off to the Ulufans River with a message for the Boer post there. He arrived after midnight and spent the night there with the picket. Until dawn, he returned to Van Reinstorp, and it was then that he heard the unmistakable sound of rifle fire. It grew heavier for a while and then stopped suddenly. That could only mean one thing. Someone had surrendered. But who was it, the Boers or the British? Then I came on Commandant Van Deventer huddled on the ground before his horse badly wounded and in great pain. Blood was pouring from a bullet wound in his throat and his tongue was so lacerated he could not speak. Two men with the Commandant explained that the fight was over. The English camp at Vintuk had been overrun. I galloped on and met about a hundred disarmed soldiers marching across the felt without their boots. They said our men had ordered them to find their way back to Clan William, fifty miles away. Colain's nemesis was approaching. In a few minutes I reached the scene of the action. General Smuts had surrounded the camp at daybreak and after a sharp fight had overwhelmed it, killing and wounding many, capturing the rest. But Smuts had lost five dead and sixteen wounded himself, the exact number the British had lost. However, he had also captured ninety prisoners and the British wagons. In this phase of the war, the British prisoners were no longer marched to Boer camps. They were set free after having their clothing and boots removed. Smuts had also seized wagons, horses, arms and ammunition, and he dealt the British a serious blow. This region is sparsely populated, it's dry, and to lose a village or town was a major problem when it came to managing logistics. There were no railway lines in this part of the Karoo either, so all food and material had to be marched over the felt on wagons. Still closer came Nemesis and Colain 
had no idea. As I rode through the camp, I found Nicholas Swart lying on the ground, apparently dead. A bullet had struck him in the chest and traversed the length of his body, emerging at his left thigh, showing that he must have been bending forward when he was hit. Swart was pale and motionless, and Rates presumed him dead. He went over to a wagon to look for Tarpaulin to throw over his friend's body, but when he came back, Swart's eyes were open. He asked me in a whisper for a drink of water, which I gave him from my bottle. Then they carried him to the shade of a wagon and bandaged his wounds. There was nothing more they could do out here in the arid, parched lands of the Karoo, far from any major town and even a proper road. The convoy was being ransacked by the Boers. Raid spotted Windle of the former Rake Section Scout Unit and went to tell him about their poor friend, Nicholas. Windle and Raitz then began searching for bed linen and other comforts to help their friend as he lay suffering in the shade of the wagon. They entered the farmhouse where the English had made their last stand, pitted with bullet holes and smudges of blood. Nemesis, the Greek god of retribution, was at hand. As we went through the rooms, strewn with upturned chairs in the hand-to-hand fighting, we saw a man in civilian clothing crouched under the arched fireplace in the kitchen. Wendell shouted, By God, it's Colleen! Rates had never met Colleen, but of course, as we've heard, he knew who he was. The sellout, the black-hearted spy who pretended to be seeking help from Commandant Bouvert, only to disappear and lead the British back in a surprise attack that left 17 dead or wounded. Wendell dragged Colleen from the house, shouting at the other Boers who were ransacking the wagons nearby to come and see who was here. Dozens of angry men were muttering threats and curses at the wretched spy. He was a man of about 45, in appearance a typical back-felt boor with flowing beard and corduroys. He was brave enough now, for when the men fiercely assured him of his certain fate, he shrugged his shoulders and showed no signs of fear. Commandant Bevere then appeared. Checked it was indeed Kalein, then ordered two men to guard him until General Smuts showed up. Meanwhile, Nicholas Swart and the other wounded had been picked up and carried off by mule wagon to a nearby farm for treatment. Rates collected newspapers and books. The youngster was always trying to read, even in the midst of this war, then prepared to ride to another farm known as Atis. Belonging to old Isaac van Zael, the local member of parliament, where General Smuts was said to be. After a short ride, Rates located Smuts at Atis, where the young general was sitting in the dining room talking to farmer Itzak van Sale. Sitting next to van Sale was his wife and two teenage daughters. Before long, Colleen the spy was ushered in by his guards, who wanted to know what to do with their prisoner. This scene was to play out after the Boer War in numerous publications, particularly by the English-speaking colonials who were to fight against the idea of a future South Africa run by a future Prime Minister Louis Bouta and then Prime Minister Jan Smuts. This moment was where Smuts needed to make a choice, thumbs up or thumbs down. There was no other life or death. General Smuts had heard of Kalange treachery and, after questioning the escort to make sure of the man's identity, he sentenced him to death without further formality. There was a stillness in the room, and the general said simply, 
take him out and shoot him. Kalein's nerve finally failed him and he fell to his knees, begging for mercy. The two girls burst into tears and fled the room, along with their mother, Mrs. Van Sale. Smuts repeated his order as the guards hesitated. Then Reverend Creel entered the room. He was the man Rents disliked because he prayed non-stop. Now the Reverend stepped forward and asked leave to pray for the soul of what he called this poor sinner. Smuts relented and Colleen was taken to a blacksmith's small shed behind the main house. Rates, the young man, was unsure of what to think. I looked in a little later. I saw him and the clergyman kneeling side by side against the ploughed tail, deep in prayer. Then Smuts ordered a man by the name of Andres de Vet to collect together the firing squad. As he disliked the job, he asked me to accompany him. Even now, with their hated spy about to be dealt his final card, the men of this commander were expressing compassion. Coy workers were sent to dig a grave out of sight of the house to spare the women folk. Three Boers off-saddled in the garden and fetched their rifles. Then they walked with rates to the workshop door. Andres de Vet caught the doom in his eye and pointed to the prisoner. The clergyman touched Colleen on the shoulder and said, Brother, be a man, your time has come. Colleen took the news calmly and shook Reverend Creel's hand, saying he was ready. We led him to where the grave was being dug. On the way, he spoke to us. He said he deserved to die, but he was a poor man and had taken the blood money to keep his wife and children from starving. They walked slowly to the back of the farmhouse, some distance away from the buildings where the diggers were completing the grave as the small party approached. The unfortunate man blanched when he looked into the shallow pit. Perhaps he still hoped for a reprieve until he saw it. Suddenly Colleen turned, asking for another prayer. Then he pleaded with the youngster Denise Reitz, asking him to fetch Jan Smuts. But we felt that the sooner it was over, the better. So the vet blindfolded him and placed him at the head of the grave. Realizing that this was the end, Colleen held up his hands and, in a low tone, recited the Lord's Prayer, while the firing party silently ranged themselves. As he came to the final, Amen. They fired. With a convulsive jerk, he pitched backwards into the grave. The terrified farm workers quickly covered his body with earth. And so, Nemesis had delivered retribution, and the deaths of the men Colleen had caused were avenged. This is what most thought as they went about their day. Inside the farmhouse, Jan Smuts was busy discussing strategy when the shots rang out. Little did he know how Colleen's execution would come back later to haunt him in the Houses of Parliament and throughout his life. Rates wandered back to his friend Nicolas Swart, who had been placed on a bed of straw in one of the rooms in the farmhouse. Nicolas was taken with a sick man's fancy that I should remain by his side. Every time Rates tried to leave, Swart grabbed his hand, asking him to stay. For the next few days, Rates actually nursed his friend back from the brink of death, and within a month, miraculously, Swart was back on his feet. The British had been driven away from the Northern Cape. Smuts had achieved the first part of his mission. Now his men needed a break. Smuts had moved further westward towards the Atlantic Ocean, which was now only 25 miles from his camp on the Ulufans River, so he decided it was time for a bit of unusual R&R. &R. 
So Smuts called for Boers who had not set sight on the ocean to meet him. About 70 Boers arrived from the Northern Cape within two days. With these, we set off for a small inlet on the coast called Fishwater, writes a mischievous race. First, Smuts and his posse passed the famous Ebenezer Mission Station, and then towards afternoon, they glimpsed something remarkable. The glint of the sea through a gap in the dunes. It was amusing to watch the expression on the men's faces as the great expanse of the ocean burst on their view, for few of them had seen anything bigger than the dam on their parents' farms. This curious commander of beachgoers topped the last dunes and stopped their horses to stay in wonder. Of course, that was only for a second. Then, like Greek soldiers, rushed forward in a body, crying, The sea! The sea! Each wanting to be the first on the beach. In a moment, they turned back into children. Soon they were throwing their clothes off, and that's when Rates and a handful of others who had experience of the sea began to save their colleagues from their own zeal. Our trouble was not to get them to enter the waves, but to prevent them from venturing in too deep. The men had thrown their saddles on the beach and rode their horses barebacked into the surf, shouting and laughing whenever one was thrown headlong by the breakers. They weren't alone. Staring open-mouthed nearby was a family of Koi fishermen who called this part of the Northern Cape their home. That night we camped in the dunes, sitting around great fires of driftwood, the men discussing what they had seen until far into the night and telling each other of the things they would have to recount when they got home again. Those that would live to tell this tale, of course. The beach party spent two more days there and ended up helping the local koi fishermen drag their nets in the nearby estuary and then sharing the bounty of prawns and fish. Then we returned along the Ulfans River to our starting place, proud of having ridden our horses into the sea. And now we must halt as well. Next week, General de la Rey is cornered again, but he is fated for great things as we'll hear. So until then, please rate the podcast on iTunes if you can. Thanks to those who have sent me wonderful messages of support in the last week, particularly Colonel John Wilson of the Johannesburg Regiment and Samuel in Florida in the United States for your wonderful donation. I can't thank you enough. You have consistently supported me since the start of this series. And to Charles, who's a computer programmer and says he listens to this podcast while he works. Hope your algorithms turn out just fine. If you'd like to send me a message, please head off to the website abwarpodcast.com. The link for messages is on the homepage. I'm also on Twitter, by the way, at Des Latham. So, until we meet again, goodbye. <laughs> O bring me terug naar die Oud-Transvaal, daar waar my sari woon. Daar onder in die mil is by die groen door een boom, daar woon my sari mare. Daar onder in die mil is by die groen door een boom.